You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Now here's the deal. The highlight of the creation account, as we talked to in the equip class this morning, is the creation of man, made in God's image. God was the initiator of that. And God created man for his purposes, but here's what we know as Christians. His purposes for our lives is what's best for us. Now, why does this apply to Colossians? It doesn't just apply because it says firstborn over all creation. We'll get into that in a minute, but here's why it applies. The Jesus of Colossians 15, 1, 15-23, he was present in Genesis chapter 1. The fullness of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were present. He was preexistent. He was before creation. And so my hope is that today we catch a glimpse of who that Jesus is. So here's, here's a, a quick overview or a background of context of what's going on. Um, supremacy and preeminence of Christ is what's in view here. What is preeminence? Here's a great way to define it. Surpassing all others in superiority. So supremacy and preeminence of Christ. Surpassing all others in superiority. The Apostle Paul had received some news from a dude named Epaphras. And he informed Paul of the faith of the church of Colossae. So he's like, good news. The church of Colossae, they have great deep faith in Christ. They're being faithful to Jesus. They're being faithful in their love to the church. But he also passes along some concerns. And he says to Paul, there's some false teachers that have shown up on the scene. And these false teachers, they've begun promoting some some real serious heresy about the person of Christ. They've been promoting some real heresy about who Jesus himself is. Ultimately, they would deny the deity of Christ, and they would deny the humanity of Christ. We're not going to get into the depths of that. But they started denying that Jesus was fully God and that Jesus was fully man. And so as you can imagine, these heretics come on the scene, this new church at Colossae, they're doing well. There's all of a sudden a lot of confusion going on, right? Modern day, if one of you started preaching and teaching some type of heresy about the person of Christ, a lot of you would be confused. Likely, I or Michael would get some emails. We have to have a conversation because a part of our job, in addition to prayer and preaching, is to protect the flock. So we want to protect the flock against heresy. So that's what's going on at the beginning of this chapter. There's some heresy going on. And so further, in addition to the humanity and deity of Christ, um, many of the era, the, the uh, errors would revolve around uh, Jesus not being enough, basically. So uh, they were not presented in place of Christ, necessarily. They were presented in addition to Christ. Another way to say that would be taking away from not just his supremacy, but his sufficiency. If Christ isn't sufficient, we're much like what Corinthians 15 says. We're without hope. So it was this idea that Christ was prominent, he was important, but he wasn't preeminent. He was supreme, but he wasn't sufficient. It was as if Christ wasn't enough. Now, that's, that's a real problem. That's a big, a big fundamental problem that historically would be considered unorthodoxy, heresy. 
So let me let me stop here for a minute because praise God we've got a healthy church um, that doesn't believe these things. But I want to ask you just as a as a way of practicality in, in your own life, what are some areas in your life that you struggle to believe Christ is enough? And this kind of goes back to some of the rhetorical questions at the beginning. Is it is it your attitude about certain things in our culture? Maybe cynicism. Is Christ not enough to help you not sin and cynicism? Maybe, maybe it's your response to frustrating things in life. I, on the other hand, never get frustrated about life, but I can imagine you do. Just kidding. Is it, is it not believing that Jesus is enough to help you not sin when something is frustrating? What about in school or a relationship or maybe a familial relationship? They don't know Christ. Is Christ not enough to actually do the work of bringing that person from death to life? Is Christ not enough to help you conduct your schoolwork in a way that honors him? I mean, we could apply this all day long, right? In what ways are you tempted to believe that Christ is not enough? You may not be spreading heresy that Jesus is not God or Jesus is not holy man. That would be a big problem. But practically speaking, how are you tempted to do that? Quick glimpse of chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. So here's what Paul does. He gives a quick greeting. Hello, I'm Paul. Glad you're here. And then he gives a thanks, and then he prays. And at the very end of the prayer, he gives the gospel. Look what he says there in verse, we'll start in 10. Eight, nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's praying for them. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we need wisdom and understanding to walk in this manner that Paul's asking of us, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. The Father has qualified us, not us. You don't qualify yourself. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we've been brought into the family. He has delivered us from where? The domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he literally gives you a glimpse of the gospel there in verses 12 and 13. And so when you get to verses 15, this begins the real main body of the letter of Colossians. Something shifts, right? The greeting and the introduction in the gospel, something shifts there in verse 15. It's the main body of the letter. And it's, it's to highlight and to clearly teach that you and I are supreme. Not at all. Paul writes this passage of Scripture to clearly teach and highlight that Jesus is supreme and sufficient. Verses 15 through 20, if you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, this is one of the clearest descriptions of the person of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. There's all kinds of names that scholars give that are way more creative than mine. So I won't give them to you. Go look them up. But this is one of the clearest pictures of who the person of Christ really is. And it is important to note that this is not written as a refutation. Paul is not yet refuting the heresy. 
And this is important. What he is is declaring the truth. This is, this is an indicative declaration of truth. This is not a suggestion. This is not a maybe. This is not a, man, I hope mom brings pizza home Friday night. Like this is a declaration of truth of who Christ is as if to clarify the fundamentals before moving into a more a, a polemic or rebuke type of writing. Clarifying the fundamentals of who Christ is before he moves into rebuke. Here's the simple truth. I think I put it. Oh, yep, there it is. Simple truth, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. If Jesus was not God, he could not have died on the cross for us. Why? Because if Jesus was not God, he wasn't perfect. And if Jesus wasn't perfect, then he could not have fulfilled all the law and all the commands of Scripture. And if he was not perfect and did not fulfill all the laws and the commands of Scripture, then he could not in any way, shape, form, or capacity have died on behalf of all of humanity. It would have been a nice gesture for me to die for Victor, but I can't die for Victor's sins because I'm sinful. If Jesus wasn't God, we'd be without hope. Simple truth, Jesus is God. Quick mention, uh, a couple different scholars, uh, I mentioned some names earlier, referenced these um, passages of Scripture too that I thought were really helpful. Um, some would say this passage makes up the twin theological towers. Lordship over creation, verses 15 through 17. Lordship over the church, verses 18 through 20. So lordship over creation, verses 15 through 17. Lordship over the church, verses 18 through 20. I've already read verses 13 and 14, but they provide a nice segue. And I want you to see this. I think I put it in the, the outline. Only the Jesus described in verses 15 through 20 can do the work of verses 13 and 14. If Jesus was not the Jesus of verses 15 through 20, then Jesus could not have done the work of verses 14 and 15. Does that make sense? It's really important for us. It's as if Paul is saying, Come in, have a seat, and let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to the sovereign, supreme, preeminent Jesus Christ of the Scriptures that is able to do what I just said at the end of my prayer that he could do. Verses 13 and 14. If Christ was not what verses 15 through 20 outline, we're left without hope. Here's, here's my hope for you this morning. There's going to be a lot of practical application, especially at the ends. But my hope is not in the greatest sense or form that you would feel better about yourself. I hope you do. My hope this morning is not that you would find yourself in the scriptures or that you would um, walk away feeling deep down. None of those are my greatest hopes, although sometimes those are applications of what God does through the Word. Here's my greatest hope, that you would catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ, that you would catch a glimpse of His incredible majesty, and that that would be on display to the end of all of us growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ. I want you to catch a glimpse of that Jesus. I don't want you to see you. I don't want you to see me. I want you to see Jesus. Look what verse 15 says. We're going to just take this little by little. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? The Greek word here actually is akon. It's where we get our natural word in the English language. 
icon, so it's a visual representation. It is meant to communicate the representation or the reflection, the visible manifestation of God. Jesus is the visible manifestation of God. He is the outward illumination of God. Jesus makes the invisible God what? Visible. You can talk. We're family. It's all right. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. John 1, 1 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is the Jesus we're talking about, John 1, 1. John 10, 30, the Son is equal with the Father. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He is the visible manifestation. He is deity. He is God. He was present in creation. He is present now at the right hand of the Father. And he will come back. He himself, in fact, Peter says. He's not sending someone else. Sometimes I send my daughter to go take the trash out. She complains about it. Or sometimes I send her to go get dog food. And she hates filling the dog food and water bowls up, um, just to be honest. He's not sending someone to do that. He's, he himself is very prominent. He himself is going to return. Jesus is God. He continues on in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Romans says that through one man came sin, through another man, in essence, came life. I'm just summarizing for us. The Greek word here is prototokos, meaning firstness in time. It doesn't mean that he was created. Some heretics would say that in this passage, this is saying that Jesus wasn't always there. He was created. He was the first creation of God. That's not it at all. In the Greek and in its context, understanding the language, this word means firstness in time, succession in creation, priority, position, supremacy. It doesn't mean created. Don't miss it. He was always there. Christ is the Lord of all things and not just some. Psalm 89.27 says, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He is over all creation. So he has always been, he will always will be, and he is over all things. And we can see that in a million different places. Look at verse 16. You're hanging with me. I like it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. So he is the creator of everything. What does that mean? What did he create? Heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible. Thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Romans 13 references is actually, <clears throat> regardless of your opinion of any political leader, God's not surprised by that. He uses wicked men, good men for his purposes. He even used Pharaoh for his purposes. You think for one minute that any president we've ever had in our history was placed in, in, in where they were placed outside of God's rule and sovereign command? That, that's just not true. God, God uses men, even evil men, even good men for his purposes. 
He is over all authorities in this land, and we can rest in that. We can rest in that. All was made through him and for him. Through his hands and for his glory. We referenced this even in the equip class this morning. I always think back to Job. God says, where, where, where were you when I created all things? Job is literally arguing with God. Sometimes we find ourselves there, right? <laughs> Something's going crazy in life. Maybe it is, you know, uh, a boss at work or a friend or a circumstance that's going on. I can assure you the circumstance Emily found herself in this weekend was not something that she was praying that God would do for her this weekend. But even in those type of scenarios, we can trust that God is doing what's best for us. And I'm going to share some real examples of how God has done great things, even through what's going on in the guy's life. Where were you? God says, you, you don't have the understanding that I have. Who are you to argue with me? Yet he's gracious. He's not afraid to say that. Sometimes the scriptures say things to us that hurt our hand a little bit, step on our toes a little bit. That's good. That's great. We don't want to be tickled on our ears all the time. He is the creator of everything. All things are made through him and for him. Verse 17 and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Whether you see this preposition before as referring to preeminence or preexistence, so preeminence being superiority or preexistence being an order of creation, it doesn't really matter because it really can mean both. We've already shown that in this passage. He was before all things. He was there before creation, and he must be if he's Lord of creation. He was preeminent and must be because of verse 15. He's the fullness of God. We know that. Verse 1 of creation, preeminent. He is before all things. <clears throat> and all things are held together by him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the creator and the sustainer. Moment by moment, he is sustaining everything we know. He truly has the whole world in his hands. Now you're singing that song. It's interesting. <clears throat> you know, my wife being a nurse, I'm a, basically a doctor because I'm married to her. Just kidding. <laughs> Andy always jokes with me because I try to, like, talk medical because I've been married to her for so long, and it, it doesn't go real well. Um, but I like to do it and mess with her. <clears throat> but anyways... Just being married to her and then being in the context of University of Michigan, it's amazing to me. There's so many smart people that know all kinds of things about the medical stuff. And when you meet like a really well-qualified medical person that's a believer and they understand kind of how the human body works, or even maybe you meet someone that's doing like astrophysics over here um, and they understand how the universe works. Like there are so many myopic little pieces and parts that have to be perfectly in order for the kneecap to move the way it's supposed to or for the planets not to totally explode, you know, like Earth. If we were just how much you probably know, Alex, how much closer we should be if we were to the sun, we would just burn up or if we were just a little bit further away, we would freeze. Right. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to me. God is sustaining all of that. He created it that way and he's sustaining it. Last I checked, 
I'm not causing my lungs to expand and contract right now. I'm not causing my brain to send synapses to my mouth. And it sends a lot of them, by the way. You've been around me for any amount of time. Amy, stop nodding. Yes. I'm talking <laughs> It's amazing. Even as, as a TBI nurse, you know, Amy would meet, often meet Christian doctors, but some of the, the neurosurgeons weren't necessarily Christian, but they still, most of them believed in something greater than what's here because they, they didn't have any explanation for how the brain operates and functions and heals. He is the creator and the sustainer. And what's even greater, all things are held together by him. There's this personal nature of it. He didn't create it and then just walk away. He didn't just create it and forget it. Like we like a lot of things like that. I like set it and forget it. And I have five kids. Like, you know, I like to cook on a grill. I bought a little bit more expensive of a grill so I can legit like set it and walk away and look at the temperature on my phone. Why is that? Is it because I don't want to like stand in front of my grill and cook all day? Now that would be great, but that's just not a reality where I'm at in life. Like we like set it and forget it kind of things. We code, right? We put code in place. And then all of a sudden through artificial intelligence, all these devices are doing all kinds of things for us behind closed doors, and we don't even know that it's happening, half of us, right? We like that. That's not how God works. He's actively involved, sustaining creation. I heard an example of a, a farmer. I grew up uh, as a grandson of a cattle farmer. My dad did a lot of farming, you know, real blue collar. Long story short, my dad would plant a huge garden every year. It's gigantic. And he would never plant those plants and just walk away from them. And God, in, in, a, in a much greater way, my dad didn't create the plants to put them in the ground. Like God did. God created them, and he's not walking away from them. He's actively involved. All things are held together by him, the creator and the sustainer. Verse 18, look what it says. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's think through these together. He is the head of the body, the church. 1 Corinthians 12 should be in mind here if you're, if you're taking notes. <clears throat> he walks through this idea of how we are all intricate and important parts of the body. You could have a really strong leg, but if you don't have a foot, there's a challenge. You could have a really strong arm, but if you don't have a hand, there's a challenge. We used to have a pastor would ask us, what are you? You know, jokingly, are you the hand, the foot? Some of you guys smell a little worse than others, so maybe you're the foot. I don't know. Just kidding. But in short, the body as a whole, yet collective, is important. And he is the head of the body. He holds supremacy and rank. If you were to ask Michael and I, we are under shepherds to the great shepherd. And I, and I want you to hear me, what I'm about to say to you. If you ever hear anything come out of my mouth, out of Michael's mouth that you believe is in direct contradiction from what Jesus says in his words, you have 1,000% commitment to come and talk to us about it. In fact, I encourage it. Please. Now be nice about it. We can talk to it. But this is not a dictatorship. We are under shepherds in submission to Christ, and you guys submit to your pastors as we submit to Jesus. That's how it works. That's how it works. I need just as much grace as you do. He holds supremacy and rank. He died for the church. The body is the church. Ephesians 5.25 is just one place that I would reference. He calls the husbands, right, to love 
They're wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's this idea that if a husband is willing to sacrifice all things for his wife, then things are going to go okay. Because the wife, in turn, is to do the same. It's a submissive, sacrificial love. It's not a demeaning type of love. If anything, if the wife is submitting to a sacrificial leader, that's a good thing. Because that leader is always going to do what's best, ultimately for the Lord, which in turn is what's best for his wife and his family. Like That's the way it's supposed to work. And Jesus died for the church. So that's an example of the church. Here's the deal. I tell people all the time, I love campus ministries. I do. My wife's story under what happened with crew used to be campus crusade is really encouraging to me. We support that. <laughs> We're grateful for it. I know a lot of you guys are part of it. Some of you are part of athletes in action. Some of you are part of other groups. But at the end of the day, those ministries are not the church. They're not the church. They are not the local church. Christ died for athletes in action. No, he died for the church. Christ died for Campus Crusade. No, he died for the church. Does that mean those, those ministries are wrong? Absolutely not. Don't be a part of them. But God's design is for the local church, under the order of God's design, to be where you have your central set of relationships and where you grow most in your grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the way the New Testament designed it. This is not Chris's design. And so the, I'm telling you right now, the most healthy Campus ministries you will ever find are those that submit themselves to the local church. I promise you that. The most healthy campus ministries are those that see themselves as a helpful additional service to the local church. He is the head of the church. He died for the church. That is his bride. He says, this is my bride. I deeply care for her. He is head over her and is the perfect example of the love you see in calling the husbands to in Ephesians 5. The church exists for God's glory. That's God's plan. That's how God seeks to carry out the mission of the New Testament through the local church. So he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. <clears throat> what does that mean? He's the start of all things. Nothing started before him. Nothing started before him, nor could it. <clears throat> I was recently having a conversation with um, someone remained unnamed, because I really hope that someone will one day come into Christ. Uh, but the conversation started like this. Hey, I have a, a book or a bunch of books related to philosophy, and I've, I've read through all of them, and I've got some questions for you. And they started describing to me all types of, I guess, philosophical foundations for even creation and they got to Thomas Aquinas, and you know, then they worked through the watchmaker, and it was a, it was an intriguing conversation. And basically, the question was, you know, explain the difference to me in, you know, evangelicalism and even Catholicism. Explain, explain how you overcome the problem of evil. Explain, um, you know, <coughs> things that are really easy to walk through, as you can imagine. Um, but it was a great conversation because it was a great learn. I mean, it's just this person has become a wonderful friend of mine, and we keep this conversation open, and we love one another. But at the end of the day. The watchmaker is a great example. When you have a beautiful watch in your hands, it's only normal to assume that prior to that watch, there was someone that made it. That watch didn't just appear. The intricacy of a watch is, is amazing. Just a watch. We're not, we're not even talking about creation. He was the start of all things. Nothing started before him, nor could it. He is the beginning. And then it says he's the firstborn from the dead. <clears throat> what does this mean? He was the first to be born from the dead in a true resurrected life. But here's the key. He never died again. 
Who did Jesus raise from the dead? Somebody yell it out. Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So, right, Jesus is walking through and he's showing his deity, showing that I am God. Everything's pointing to, look, I'm God. And I'm God over all these things. I'm, I'm God even over life. And so I can raise Lazarus from the dead. But guess what? Lazarus didn't stay alive. One day Lazarus took his last breath, didn't he? He died. Just like all of us will, unless Christ returns before that happens, right? He was the firstborn of all creation in a true resurrected life, never to die again. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. He died, but he overcame the grave. Lazarus was raised, but he eventually died again. That was not the case with King Jesus. He leads the way for us to a fully resurrected life. Remember Romans 5. <coughs> Excuse me. I know I referenced this earlier. Sin entered the world through one man. Life entered through the life, death, and resurrection of one man. Jesus is the new Adam of Romans 5. Why? So that you might get everything you want. So that you might have an easy life and never have challenges. So that you might make millions and billions of dollars and do whatever the heck you want. No. Maybe those things happen to you. I kind of hope they do. But honestly, sometimes I hope they don't happen to you. Because what happens when we have nothing but ease of life, we get pretty complacent and lazy. We get pretty tempted not to rely on Christ. Why did he do these things? So that he might have first place in everything. Supremacy, superiority. That he might be preeminent or first in your life. Is he first in your life? And this could be a reorientation. <clears throat> Maybe you're absolutely a believer. But lately there's been some challenges that have really taken the supremacy of Christ to a different place. And you're being challenged by the word of God. Man, I need to, I need to, I need to get this right. And I, and I praise God for that. I praise God for it. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It says to have all fullness dwell in him. To dwell is the infinitive. If you're an English person, English major, to dwell is the infinitive here. So this means that God delights in his deity being in the Son. God delights in Jesus being fully God. To reconcile is also an infinitive. So to dwell and to reconcile. He is reconciling everything to himself. How? By making peace through his blood on the cross. So not only does he delight in all of his deity being in the Son, but he also delights in the full work of redemption. Now that's a really big statement. Delighting in the full work of redemption. I found some really good reading and writing on this. <clears throat> and I want to read this to you because, and I think I put it on the screen, it's, it's a fairly long quote. But if he delights in the full work of redemption, I want you to think about what that entails. What did Jesus have to do to his most prized possession, his son, to accomplish redemption. What do you have to do? Put him on the cross. Now think about that. I mean, what man was asked to take his son to the top of the mountain in Genesis? Isaac and Abraham, right? And what happened? Do you remember? 
all of a sudden, a replacement was provided in the bush. That was a foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus, to accomplish the full redemption, delighted and was pleased to sacrifice his son. That's the Jesus of Colossians. Here's what it says. Up to this point, the narrative of the crucifixion is always focused on the physical sufferings of Jesus. <clears throat> the flogging, the crown of thorns, and the immolation on the cross. Six hours have now passed since the nails were driven home. The crowds have jeered, darkness has covered the land, and now suddenly, after a long silence, comes this anguished cry from the depths of the Savior's soul. John Calvin actually says, the terrible torments of a condemned and lost man. <clears throat> now, although his comment, Jesus' comment, does not imply that the triune relationship was broken, the Trinity was still in unity. The eternal communion of the Trinity was not forsaken. It does not imply that the Father ceased to love the Son. It does not imply that the Holy Spirit had ceased to minister to the Son. And most would say that this was not a cry of true despair, because that would be sinful. Yet with all of these qualifiers, here's what was going on. Christ was truly forsaken. For the first time in all of creation, Christ was forsaken. Jesus did not merely feel forsaken. He was forsaken, and not only by his disciples who fell asleep. Like, think about that. He's, he's praying so deeply, he's crying blood, and he asks his three closest disciples, just stay awake. And he goes off to pray, and he comes back, and what are they doing? They're asleep. He wakes them up. Guys, guys, wake up. Watch and pray. And he goes off to pray, and he comes back, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. And then he goes off to pray and he comes back and they're asleep again. And then what happens? He's handed over to the enemy to go and be crucified. Like, are we asleep? That's the question. Are we so enamored by the world around us that we're asleep? It was the Father who had delivered him up to, the Jew, to, to Judas and to the Jews and to Pilate. The Father delivered him there in his sovereign will and reign and rule. It was his father that finally led him to the cross itself. And now, when Jesus cried, God closed his ears. In that moment, all the weight of our sin was placed on the Son, and he suffered the wrath of his father for the first time and the last time in history. The crowd had not stopped jeering. The demons had not stopped taunting. The pain had not abated. Instead, every circumstance bespoke the anger of God, and there was no countering voice. This time, no word came from heaven to remind him that he was God's son and that he was greatly loved. No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence and ministry, and no angel came to strengthen him. No redeemed sinner bowed to thank him. He stood where none has stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and time all that sin deserved. That is the Christ of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And let me add, even at that moment, he knew all that you and I would ever think, say, or do, and he still did it. He knew everything that you would seek to add in addition to Christ. He knew everything that you were tempted to let take supremacy and primacy in your life. 
He knew everything that you would say, think, say, or do that was dishonoring to him, and yet he still did it. A covenant personal relationship with the church. The father was pleased to do this. He was pleased to do this because it reconciled his bride to himself. Here's a question I throw out to you. <clears throat> How are you doing with living in thankful praise for the work that Christ has done for you? How does that look in your life from day to day? <clears throat> look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Uh, verse 20 finishes with specifically spelling out that he was pleased to reconcile everything to himself. We've kind of talked through that. Um, and so this includes everything, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all we know, including to the cosmos and the universe. Um, and so Romans 8 actually tells us that creation itself is groaning to be redeemed. I've given two charts. They kind of say the same thing, but they were helpful for me. You can see our position then was alienated and hostile in our minds. Our position now is he has reconciled us. We are at peace and in harmony. Why, how and why? How did that happen? Why, why was our position alienated and hostile? Because of our evil actions. Because of what we had done. <clears throat> but how did he do it? By the death of his physical body and his resurrection. It got cut off. I apologize for that. By the death of his physical body and the resurrection of Christ. And then why? Why did he do it? To present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. Holy equals to be set apart, to be cleansed. Now we are able to relate to God. We are blameless and faultless when he sees you. He does not see your sin. He's removed them from as far as the east is from the west, which is an infinite amount of space and time. He sees Christ and his sacrifice. You are without blemish because you're seen through Christ. Look at the contrast of verses 21 and 22 in the next chart. Before and after Christ, before our location was alienated and hostile, verse 21, after Christ, we are reconciled. We are brought back in, verse 22, and then it references verses 13 and 14, as we talked about earlier. Prior to Christ, the cause and motivation was because of our own simple desires, our selfish glory, verse 21. Why did he do it? To present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. What an incredible and a beautiful picture of spiritual reconciliation. That's what Christ has done. That's the Christ of 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, of Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Look at verse 23, and we'll close out. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want to I tease something out here that I think is really, really important. This verse is not saying that your preservation in Christ is contingent on your work. It doesn't mean that your work in Christ isn't important because it is, but it does not mean that your salvation is in any way, shape, or form tied to what you do or don't do. And I want to be very clear at that. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. So you may say, okay, Chris, well, how can you say that? If nothing that I do or don't do is what's preserving me, then how can Paul say that? I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you. Perseverance is the point. Write that down. Perseverance is the point. Now, English, English majors again. This clause is in what's called the first class 
condition. First class condition. Snotty coach is in first class. Okay? And what this is meant to communicate is a positive answer. The first class condition communicates a positive answer. What do I mean by that? In other words, it's presumed true for the sake of the argument. It's a way of using argumentation. It's presumed true for the sake of the argument. It's meant to communicate confident certainty, not uncertainty. It's almost as if to assume that this perseverance is the natural response of those who are genuinely in faith. It is the natural response. What happens here is the natural response for those that are genuinely in the faith. Another way to say it is, if you are genuinely saved, I'm sure you will do these things. I'm confident that you will do these things. If you have genuine faith in Christ, I am confident that you will indeed continue in the faith, that you will be stable and steadfast, that you will not shift from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I am sure that you will continue in this because of your genuine faith. He then says the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, become a servant. The gospel has not and will not change. It's always going to be the old story. If someone tries to tell you there's a new part of the story, you've got a problem. The gospel is forever going to remain the same and will be fully culminated when Christ returns. Paul's purpose and driving force is the gospel. That's what Paul is saying to you at this moment. Because Jesus is the Jesus that we see in verses 15 through 23, the driving force and all I do say, think, and act upon is the gospel. That's the driving force for everything I do. It's interesting to me how often I in my own life can find very different driving forces. And I prayed even as I worked through this yesterday and even this morning that the Lord would reorient my heart and mind in areas that I'm tempted to be driven by anything other than the glory of Christ. Don't be driven by your suffering. Take joy in suffering knowing that Christ is steadfast. Don't be driven by success. Don't be driven by money. Don't be driven by relationships. Don't be driven by friendships. Don't be driven by school. Is it wrong to have a drive to do those things? No. But when I say driven, do not be ultimately driven by anything other than Christ. So that if all or any of those things were stripped away, you're driven by the ultimate creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus is our Lord. I, I thought I'd apply this. I don't remember if I put it on the... Maybe I did. We say Christ that we would like to delight in, declare, and display the gospel and display Christ. And so here, here are my application points to you. I, I want you, based on what we've seen of Christ in Colossians 1, I want you to delight in the true Christ of the Scriptures. Don't delight in any other type of Christ. Delight in the true Christ of the Scriptures. Does he have primary position in your life? Press into him. Seek him. Seek the Christ that we see in Colossians. Spend time with him. Listen to him. Spend time with people that listen to him. Share the gospel because you know this Christ. Don't do it on your own strength. Don't do it because you feel like you have to. Do it because you are literally 
faced with who Christ is and because of what he's done and who he is and what he continues to do, you are pushed out to go and live on mission. I want you to declare the gospel per verse 23 is the natural outcome. Just like he says, the gospel of verses 13 and 14, and then in verse 23, I trust that you will live this way because you have genuine faith. Speak of Christ often. Don't be fearful. I can't tell you how many times I'm sometimes just tempted to be fearful. Don't be fearful to say to your coworkers or your colleagues or your classmates or your family, like, this is what Christ is doing in my life. I try to practice it. Sometimes a coworker will say, you're a, good, you're a good man. I'm like, no, I'm really not that good, but I serve a good God, and his name is Jesus. Like, that's why you see goodness in me, because I'm made in the likeness and the image of Christ. Like, speak of Christ often. Be able to show who the true Christ is and show why it needed to be so. Show in your life, demonstrate in your life why Christ had to do what had to happen in Colossians 1, 15-23. Live out that. You've been bought with a price. It was costly. There's a whole lot more going on than just physical pain on that cross as we've seen today. And then lastly, to display Christ. If Christ is primary in our lives, then they will be defined by his presence in our lives. You know, you, you, you've probably been around some people in your life that like are solid believers, maybe they've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, and you like leave their presence and you're like, whew, they've been with Jesus. Like you just, you just, it's just like the aroma of Christ is all over them. And it's not because of who they are, but it's because who they've been spending time with. Display the world. Display to the world for the sake of the gospel that you know this Jesus. And then display to those closest to you in unity and grace. The, the, the Trinity gives us the unity of Christ, and then all throughout the New Testament, we're told that the church should be unified. And i got to tell you, the New Testament grew very, very rapidly through persecution. There's two things promised in the New Testament. Salvation by grace through faith, and suffering. Sorry, but it is. Suffering and persecution are promised to the New Testament church. In some way, shape, or form. And so the New Testament church, and even in some countries nowadays, grew really, really rapidly through persecution, largely because why? Because number one, the only reason you are going to persevere in the midst of suffering and persecution is because it's genuine faith. Like the fastest way to split the wheat from the tares is for something hard to hit. And then all of a sudden, the true color comes out, right? But in addition to that, the reason the church grows so rapidly is because in persecution, what happens to the believers? What's the natural response? Yell it out. We come together in steadfastness. We come together in unity. We are pressed into one another. We are pressed into one another. We have to rely on one another. I got to tell you guys, I just have to testify because I like to do that. And maybe we should be a little more charismatic about those things. I don't know. But at the end of the day, like our church may be small in number, but we are great in grace. Emily Geyer had to be rushed to the emergency room yesterday morning. Within two hours, there was someone at her house watching all the kids. The rest of the kids were shuffled to our house. We took one. Amy took one to, to this fun run. We had a, a member set up a meal train. We had the entire day laid out for them so that the kids had, were fed and clothed. And, and now the church is providing food. Mom's coming in town today. We're going to make sure she gets here. We've got the entire afternoon planned. Alyssa's doing I mean, I could name after name after name. 
Like that is the example of a church that may be small in number because we're early in the early stages of planting, but we are a familial church. We are pressed in hard times. We are pressed into one another, not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to. We're pressed in hard times into one another. And if you haven't experienced that, I would dare say at TCC, the reason you haven't experienced that is because you're not allowing yourself to. We're a very individualistic culture. Amen? We like to hide things. We like to keep things to ourselves. We don't want to be an inconvenience, which normally the root of that is pride. Get your pride out of the way and display to the world that a kindred spirit in the church is a different kind of community. Ann Arbor is unique. They love their community. But I watch it break down all the time. What do I mean by that? Well, they love to do all kinds of things in front of people, and that's great. It's good for the good of our community. But when the rubber meets the road, the community falls apart, apart from the kindred spirit of Christ. We're the church. We're God's bride. We're his plan A, not his plan B. And the Christ of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 is the Christ that paid everything to buy us. So church, display Christ to the world so that they may see who he really is and what he's really done in your life. And let's love them longer than they can mistrust us. And let's genuinely love them in a way that doesn't hold them to the standard of a believer. Because they're not. Let's give them dignity. Let's see them. Whatever their struggles are, sin struggle or challenges or anger, let's see them in the image of God and who God made them in his image and love them because they deserve that, just like you do and I do. Display Christ. Thank you, church, for being so faithful this weekend. It's been a lot on a lot of people. But, you know, I believe God in those moments gives immense measures of grace if we just press into it. As the band moves up, I'm going to close this out in prayer. I do pray that through our time this morning, you have seen a glimpse of who Jesus is. Not the Jesus that me or you create, but the Jesus that's laid out in Scripture, who he really is. Let's pray.